everybody. It's Matthew Tilly here with Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. Um, from time to time, I feel the need to explain that little title, Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. Well, two things about that. One is a practical explanation. One is it is a podcast. Uh, you can actually, on if you, if you listen to podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or some of those platforms, you can see search for Seeking Christ in the Scriptures and it'll pop up a podcast that I put out, and it's uh, these episodes that I'm doing live with you. Uh, the I'm a little behind on posting on those, so those of you that are live get the up-to-date. But, uh, but I post those out there so people can listen to them, as well as some sermons and things like that. So that's the practical reason I say this is Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. There's also um, a doctrinal, biblical, theological reason for that. And it's really based on Matthew, excuse me, John chapter five, verse 39, John five thirty nine, And I can, I always twist up the verse when I start trying to quote it, but essentially Jesus is saying, you're looking in the scriptures to find eternal life, but those scriptures that you're searching in, they're speaking of me, Jesus is saying about him. And the point of that is we should be seeking in the scriptures but there's only one thing worth finding in the scriptures. Yes, there's going to be wisdom, but that wisdom is based on Jesus. Yes, there's going to be life and hope and peace and forgiveness and all that. But that hope, life and peace is always and only based on Jesus. So we're seeking Christ in the scriptures, meaning we are looking into the Bible to find out what Jesus says, who he is, what he can do, what he does, uh, what he's all about. And uh, the Gospels are a great place for that. Of course, that's the most direct, uh, short of our own personal lived experience, uh, having communion with him in that way. Short of that, the, the Gospels are really that most direct scriptural um, it reference to what he did and who he is and what he's about. Uh, I also like to, and, and probably one of these upcoming, uh, when we're finished with some of the Mark study, um, will transition over. I love to look in the Old Testament and seek Christ in the Old Testament. On Sunday morning, we were um, we've been preaching <clears throat> at North Beaver Baptist Church. We've been preaching on uh, the last few chapters of Luke, and it's really that that ultimate victory that Jesus secured for us, both on the cross and rising from the tomb. And we were this past Sunday, we were looking at that section where it's often referred to as the road to Emmaus. Uh, those disciples who are walking, and of course Jesus comes alongside them. And we had some some uh, some insight from from the scripture on that. But uh, the point I wanted to get to and tell you this here is Jesus is actually communicating with those those disciples. And one of the things that he says to them is, "Hey, I want you to understand who I am and what I'm about based on the Old Testament." So it's amazing to me that the Old Testament tells us as much and in some ways, even more about who Jesus is and what he does as the New Testament does. Again, I'm not trying to put one above the other. They are all God's word and all profitable for reproof and correction and and uh, and exhortation. So <clears throat> it's just simply to say I love the Old Testament as well. Uh, so all that's prelude to simply say this is Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. And right now on Tuesday evenings, um, probably more occasional than I'd like it to be. It should be weekly, but I have to miss from time to time because of other obligations. But as I'm able to do this on Tuesdays, we are studying the gospel of Mark and we are currently right smack in the middle of Mark chapter five. And that's where we'll pick up the study tonight. We left off, you'll remember, 
uh, Jesus had told his disciples, we've got to get to the other side of the, of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. That's at the end of chapter four. Uh, on the way, there's some challenges, there's some troubles, but Jesus had made a promise. He said, I'm going to get you over there. That's where we're going. I've got something I need to do. So it happened. That's what happened. They land on the other, other shore. They're starting, uh, I believe, I was doing a little bit of digging around, make sure I'm not mis misstating this. I think they're starting on probably the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, probably up somewhere around Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum, that's where a lot of Jesus's ministry really started out in um, in in his early early ministry was in uh, Capernaum. So I think that's probably where they were starting there. And then they go across, which you know, kind of in this northern north. Uh, Western section, get my geography right, northwestern section of the of the lake or the Sea of Galilee. And then they cross probably at kind of crossways to go on the far eastern shore. So that's probably where they're going next when we looked at the first part of Mark chapter five. And they come into what is often referred to as the maniac of Gadara. This is this demon-possessed man who's cutting himself, running amongst the graves, acting just just out of his mind because he's possessed of demonic influences. Um, that happens again on the Eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then at the end of the, the passage where we left off in verse 20 of chapter five, he leaves this area and the man that he healed, of course, he got the demons away from him. He's seated there in his right mind, communing with Jesus by the time the story's over. And he actually gives that man, Jesus gives that man a mission to say, go, go tell your friends about me. And in verse 20, he tells that whole region, it's called Decapolis. Um, he tells that whole region, which is that eastern side of, of the Sea of Galilee, he tells that whole region about Jesus. So he, he really takes it seriously. But they're departing. And what's not clear to me, I'm just being level, leveling with you, I'm not 100% clear on exactly where they're going. There's some disputing information that I was reading. Uh, it seems to me, and the most, most common thing that could have been happening, likely was happening, is they're now heading back to Capernaum. So Jesus had this mission. He wanted to go help this man on the eastern shore, and now they're heading back to the northwest uh, part of the Sea of Galilee. That stands to reason. One of the reasons that I would say that is in verse, um, let's see, going back to verse 18. Hang on, that's not right. Um, I can't find my place now, but I believe it is in verse 15 and 16 and 17. Verse 17 is the verse that I wanted to look at because in verse 17, these people that are in the town where that man was, was demon possessed and he's been, he's been healed and restored. The people that are in the town there, they're begging Jesus to leave. He's not got a very good reception here. Um, one possible explanation for this is this part of the Israel on that eastern shore is probably very Gentile, so not Jewish. Um, so that that's part of the shore. They they really they they've somehow you know they think Jesus is they're not they're not sure what to do with him. They're not sure what he's doing, and they're kind of almost kind of spooked by what he's doing. So they're sending him away. But now he goes back to the other side. <clears throat> You'll see that again in verse 21. They go unto the other side is what it says, which I, it's possible they're back to Capernaum again. And they're more welcoming there. They're, it's possible that the, this is a, uh, this Jewish followers of Jesus, and they're more welcoming of him, welcoming him back to, uh, back to the healing, because that's what he had been doing. They, they were really excited about that. So that's all just context of where we are. 
Um, but Jesus is, he's doing some, some fascinating things in this passage. Before I go any further, I want to stop and I'm going to just ask the Lord to help me. I, I do this for two reasons. One is I actually need the help. So I'm going to ask the Lord to do that. But second of all, I want to, for any of you that are uh, Bible students who are trying to be, trying to learn how to study the Bible, I want to give you a good model. And I hope that by doing this, it shows you that you'll not be able to study the Bible either under someone teaching you <clears throat> or even on your own, picking up the scripture and reading it for yourself. You're not going to get to that understanding, to that knowledge, simply by brute force. You might be able to do that with Shakespeare. You might be able to do that with you know, some other literary uh, greats of the past or a present for that matter. But what you're not going to be able to do with the scripture is understand it apart from the author's intent. And we've got to talk to him. And that's what I'm doing. As I'm talking to God, asking him to help me. I know it's very basic for some of you that are, are have been believers for a long time. But if, in case there's somebody that's not a seasoned Christian, I want you to know that's exactly what we're doing here. This is not, I'm not praying to you, I'm not praying for you other than to model who I'm praying to. And I would encourage you to do the same as you embark on this study with me. Let's pray together now. Uh, Lord, I'm asking you to help me uh, to teach appropriately, teach plainly, teach clearly. Help me to understand as even I'm reading your word that you will open up my mind and my heart to the truth that's here and help me as well as any that are listening to obey what you're telling us. Help us to hear your voice and obey it. And I'm praying this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick up the passage in Mark chapter 5 and verse 21. And <clears throat> I won't read, this is a lengthy passage. It actually goes all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 43. So I won't probably read over the course of this few minutes I have with you, read every verse there. I would encourage you to keep your Bible open because there's a few verses I want to call out. But I, let me give you the arc of the story that happens here. Remember, Jesus has just left that, that man on the on what I believe is the eastern shore of Galilee. He goes to the northwest section there, so they cross that. It seems like it's an uneventful crossing. Uh, but they get there in verse 21. You see that there's a there are much people gathered unto him, it says, and he and and he was nigh to the sea. So there's a lot of people there, kind of a welcome wagon that gets him there. But once he gets there, immediately we're introduced to this fella in verse 22 named Jarius. Um, and he's got a, a little girl, his little daughter, who is, it says that she's sick. Uh, in verse 23, she lieth at the point of death. So she is about to die. Now, you would think just the way that <clears throat> this story seems to be starting, this is a story about Jarius's daughter. And, and she is an important uh, component of this. And Jesus will ultimately help her. But there's actually two stories that get intertwined here. So as Jesus is exiting the boat, he gets uh, gets approached by Jairus, who says, my daughter's sick. Would you come and heal her, help her? We know you can do this. And Jesus, he goes to, he's going with Jairus to his home to help this little girl. But in the process, there's, a, there's another woman that he comes across. Um, and I believe you will see her in uh, verse 25 that you know, in verse 24, there's a lot of people there and a lot of people gathered together around him. But in verse 25, there's a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years. Some debate about exactly what's wrong with her, but the sense that I've gotten from this is that she probably had some kind of blood bleeding disorder, blood disorder probably 
where she might have been anemic, might have uh, lost a lot of blood. And if, if you've ever had to feel that, I have it. Uh, I, I know people who have. Um, <clears throat> it just it makes you feel terrible. And there's no there's, you know, short of there may be something inside of her that's bleeding. So short of some kind of surgery or something inside, maybe there's not a way to stop that. So that she's been trying all sorts of things. It says there for 12, uh, well, for 12 years. Verse 26, she's tried all kinds of things. The doctors have tried to help. Nothing fixed it. But ultimately, she has an encounter with Jesus, and Jesus heals her of this issue of blood. So remember, he's on his way to Jairus's house to heal his daughter. He encounters this woman. He heals her. Then he gets to the house. And when he gets to the house, at Jairus's house, it is, it's, a, it's a terrible scene. The, the little girl who was sick is now dead. Um, there's, as you can imagine, she's, she's a young child. I mean, Really, any death would be sad, but uh, having a child die in your home and, and lots of family probably were very upset about this and gathered. And you'll see there's pandemonium at the house. Um, but Jesus ultimately comes in and he raises this little girl. Uh, some debate, was it an actual resurrection from the dead or was she just near death and they thought it? doesn't matter either way it's miraculous i happen to think she was dead and he brought her back to life but either way um it was a miraculous occurrence and jesus restores her but the key in all this is the interaction the actual touch of jesus and what you're going to see here is that the touch of jesus restores people who were isolated that woman who had that issue of blood it appears that she was not able to have really a good relationship with anybody or with her family, but because of the touch of Jesus, she's restored to her family. And I think that's a good indication of the kind of restoration Jesus does. He restores us to our family in a couple of ways. One is he restores us to the family of God. He actually, Ephesians chapter two, verse six indicates that we actually get a seat at the table. We are part of the family of God because of the touch of Jesus, he brings us into the family, uh, just much like uh, if you know the Old Testament story of Mephibosheth, who is uh, as a man who was was uh, uh, his legs were injured and he was, had no ability to walk. And he was part of Saul's family, uh, the King Saul's family. So he's out hiding out and he's actually kind of in poverty and all that. But King David in an effort to do what was was the right thing to do, what he believed was necessary to do, seeks out Mephibosheth and brings him to the family. Even though he would have been isolated, that's a similar picture that's going on here, that we're brought into the family. We're also, uh, Jesus puts it this way, that we have a room in the house in John 14, <clears throat> 14 verse 2, where he talks about that, you know, we have a place. He's prepared a place for us. So if you're a believer in Jesus, because he has, in a sense, spiritually touched us, because of that, we are brought into the family. We have a place in the house and we have an internal, eternal inheritance. First uh, Peter chapter one and verse four talks about this inheritance that, that never, never fades, never is going to be taken away. No, nothing can take it from us because of that. And, and all those are spiritual analogies. What I also believe, again, let me come back. There's a physical um, uh, tangible reality to it as well, where sometimes people are estranged from loved ones. Sometimes people are far from people they love, maybe a husband or a wife or a daughter or a son or a, a, a mother or father, that those, those relationships can get strained. 
And Jesus does intervene and he does, it does uh, show himself to be strong in those situations. And I believe he restores that isolation and he brings those families back together. So that's what I think he's doing for this woman is he's bringing her back with her family. His touch also uh, takes something that's a distress situation, restores the distressed to a situation of peace. Remember I told you about that, that, that young girl, she died and all the family, it looks like in verse, uh, if you were to skip all the way down to verse 40, I think it is, they are all together. Well, in verse 39, they say that the damsel is dead, but uh, um, he says that the damsel, they say, why you say the damsel is dead, but sleepeth. They then in verse 40, they laugh him to scorn. So they, they say, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. And then here, um, there's a bunch of people outside. I'm, I've skipped over the verse where in verse 38, there's a bunch of people there. They're weeping and wailing. And there's a great tumult, it says. But what Jesus does in this situation, go to the end of verse 40. Apologies for jumping you around there. But go to the end of verse 40. He says, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with them and entereth in where the damsel was laying. Picture this. It's, it's just chaos. Everybody's upset. There's people hollering, yelling, weeping and wailing. All this stuff's going on because this young girl's died. Mom and daddy don't know what to do. The daddy, Jerry, is here. <clears throat> He's just walked into this situation. But what Jesus does, instead of, <clears throat> excuse me, instead of being distracted by the naysayers, instead of being distracted by the scorners, what does he do? He takes mom and daddy. Maybe there's a couple others it seems to suggest, but there was a handful of them. He just said, let's, let's go over here. And he, and he brings him into the room where Jerry's daughter was. I think he may have even closed the door and just sort of says, push out that noise for right now. And I think this is what Jesus does in the middle of the worst of circumstances. When the world just seems like it's just falling apart, the touch of Jesus intervenes and he creates peace. He creates, the Bible talks about in I think it's in Philippians, a peace that passeth all understanding. It, it's a peace that you can't even quite described, but it's there. It's something you can't really understand from a human perspective, but man, does it feel right. This is the kind of thing that Jesus provides in our, in our worst circumstances. And then lastly, and I don't think, I think definitely not the least, it is, it is actually kind of amazing what happens in verse 41, or yeah, verse 41, he takes the little girl by the hand and he, he speaks these words to her. And it's, it's basically, it says being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. Now, you and I can differ on this if you want to, but she's at least near death's door. I happen to believe she's dead. Jesus takes her by the hand, says, little girl, get up. And then what happens in verse 42, straightway she arose, the damsel arose and walked. for She was the age of 12 years, 12 years, and they were astonished. So everybody's amazed because this little girl's dead. Everybody just knew it was about to have a funeral. Jesus brings life to the dead. On a very real spiritual level, this is what Jesus' touch does. It brings people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2 says. He brings them, he quickens them, the King James says, brings them to life. This is what Jesus does to our spiritual, to, to us spiritually. He brings us from a place of death to a place of life. He also, I think, in addition to that, so this is not taking anything away from that. It is fundamentally what he does. But generally what Jesus is doing is bringing hope to hopeless situations. He does what is the impossible. Where there was no way, he makes a way. This is what Jesus does. 
He brings something that looks like it's a lost cause. They might as well just hang it up. He brings amazing potential to it. And some of you even have those testimonies where, you know, people writing you off and rightly so because you were messed up and you were going in the wrong direction. But Jesus came into your life. He made a change. And now look at you. You might be, again, any of you have a, a lot of wonderful stories you could recount, but you could say the reason for that change is not humanly explainable, but it's because of the touch of Jesus. I go through that, first of all, just to try to give you a summary overview of what I think is happening in this. And I think we could take from this that this is the kind of restoration that Jesus does. I hope that's what you're hearing here. But what I want to do very briefly in the few minutes I have left with you is try to press home for you what that means. On the one hand, I think... I'll be surprised. I mean, some of y'all that I'm, I don't see exactly who all's on here. I should probably go look, but um, I, you know, most of you that are on here, just scanning through the, the, the list of who I see on here, y'all are people I know we're friends. We know each other. And I know for a fact that at least the ones that I'm seeing to a, for a person, you believe in Jesus. So I'm not telling you anything about Jesus. You don't already know. But here's the problem, and, and I speak to my own shame, so I want you to know that I'm not just pointing my finger at you. This applies to me and really, I think, a lot of Christians. We believe that that's possible, that he does restore the isolated, that he does restore uh, the, those that are in distress, and he does restore those that are dead and hopeless and lost. He does do that. But if we believe that, then it necessarily follows that some things that some things are going to have to happen, that, that there are implications for that. Let me explain myself. If you believe that Jesus restores, and I do too, I hope, I hope you believe that I believe that. If you believe that Jesus restores those that are lost, those that are fallen away, those that are in, those that are hurting, those that are in distress, if you believe that, then that means we have to believe, first of all, in spite of whatever the fallout from that belief might be. Let me show you. Go back to verse, was that verse 22? Verse 22. So as Jesus is coming off the boat in verse 21, then there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. Now, I've already told you what's going to happen. Jesus is going to heal Jairus's daughter. He's going to bring her back to life. In fact, I've already told you that. But at the beginning of the story, we're introduced to Jairus as one who is a ruler, a ruler, one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now, if you know anything about the the the, the um, Passion Week, the, the crucifixion and all that, the rulers of the synagogue, they're the people that put Jesus on trial. They're the people who really had it in for Jesus because of their testimony to Pilate and they're pushing a pilot. Pilot did, he went along with it. So I'm not taking any, uh, any shame or blame off his shoulders. But because of what they did, Jesus was ultimately put up as a sacrificial lamb. Now, understand that these are the people that Jesus has been, I'll just say it this way, that he's been fighting with his entire ministry. They're coming after him. In fact, if you go to Mark, you go all the way back. I think even in Mark chapter one, these guys are coming after him. And it goes all the way through, all the way up again to the cross. So here's a man who's associated with 
the enemies of Christ. Yet this man, he comes up to Jesus, who has been scandalizing the religious people, and he comes to him and asks him for help. You've got to understand the, what's the word, the the, the laying aside of ego that had to happen for Jairus to walk up to Jesus and ask this. Because in his situ- in his mind, getting Jesus involved was way more important than what other people thought about him. He knew his daughter, his daughter's life was at stake. And he said, I know the man who can fix it, so I'm going to go talk to him. And I know, and he knew this, the minute he taught, and the Bible doesn't give us all these details, but I would imagine the minute that he goes and makes it public that he's talking to Jesus for some help, I can guarantee you his, his buddies down at the synagogue were not on good terms. Can you believe what Jarius was doing? But the point of trying to get you to see is if you believe that Jesus is able to restore, there's going to be some fallout. If you identify with Jesus, there are going to be some people that think you're crazy. There's going to be people that have thought, thought you lost your mind. There are going to be people that say, I don't want nothing to do with that person. There's going to be, there's going to be fallout. But we have to believe, if he truly restores, we have to believe that his involvement is more important than what other people say about us. Secondly, I'm going to show you this, this other one here. We have to believe in spite of our failings. So this woman, remember, Jesus meets Jairus. Jairus and Jesus go to Jairus' house, and on the way they meet a woman. Uh, rather, Jesus meets a woman in verse 25. She's got this issue of blood. Now, it says there that she had suffered, verse 26, suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was nothing better, but rather grew worse. She's at her wit's end. She has tried every possible remedy. Can't work. Doesn't work. And she might have thought, well, there's this guy who heals people that maybe I can just, in fact, that's the way she says there in verse 28, verse 28, for she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be behold. I think my opinion, and you can read it for yourself and come to your opinion on this, but I think she may have thought Jesus was magic. Hey, if I can just, I mean, think of what she's saying. She's literally saying, if I could just not even touch him, but touch his clothes. And she's thinking, yeah, maybe he's magical. Now, is Jesus magical? Well, no, magic's not a thing. He's God. He's got God's power. So it's, I mean, if you want to call it magic, it's, that's not appropriate, I don't think. But but you understand, it's it's bigger than that. It's not magic. It's something else. It's God. But she doesn't understand that. But what happens? Verse 29, she does touch him and straightway, verse 29, the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. So immediately, think about the mindset here. Oh, if I could touch him, it's magic. I can get healed. She touches him and what happens? She gets healed. Do you think it's because she thought it was magic? I don't think so. (laughs) Despite her ignorance, and forgive me, she doesn't understand. I'm not saying I would think differently in that situation. I'm not trying to put myself above her. I'm just trying to be honest with you. I think she's ignorant about what Jesus is and who he is. But despite her ignorance, despite her bad theology, she doesn't know what Jesus is. She doesn't know he's Messiah. She doesn't understand. She thinks he's a magic man of some sort. But because, in spite of that, it works. Why does it work? Because it's not what things we concoct in our mind, the power is fully in the hands of Jesus. 
In fact, even Jesus asked her in verse, ask in verse 30 and 30, 31 and 32. You can read that there, but basically he looks around and says, like, who touched me? Who touched me? He, he's trying to he's trying to find her, find out. She's afraid. Verse 33, go to verse 33, says there that she's fearing and trembling, knowing what was done to her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. So she's upset. She's concerned. She's worried about it. But what does Jesus say? Verse 34. Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now, don't I think sometimes we'll read a verse like that and we'll say, well, it's because she had such strong faith. Yeah, maybe. I don't think so. If you go back and look at her faith, it's basically superstition. She's just trying something. It's one more thing to try. I think the difference is she tried the right thing. She tried the one who actually could. And that's what Jesus is saying here is essentially you came to the right place because you had faith to go one more because you went one more place and you went to the right place happens to be Jesus himself, God himself. That makes the difference. Let me put it to you this way. Restoration doesn't happen because you have all the answers. If you're like me, you like to like to feel like you're right and have it all figured out and don't want nobody to know that you're trying to figure stuff out. And some of us are like that. We're just a little bit too full of ourselves. Like we've got to get it all nailed down and then we'll go, go ask Jesus for help. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, uh, your restoration will not happen. Healing will not happen. Help will not come because you have all the answers. Help only comes if you're not saved. Your help doesn't come when you get this Bible figured out. If you are saved, but you are going through a difficult time, your help does not come because you finally figured out the right combination of thoughts and words to put together. The help comes whether we need salvation or we need help in a, in a difficult time or we are we have a sin that's breaking us up or we're having a, a relationship that's not together like it should be. Whatever the problem is, that restoration only comes when we take it to Jesus. You can touch Buddha. You can touch anything you want to touch. And it's not going to make a bit of difference. The difference comes when that connection comes to Jesus, when you reach out to him, when he is the one that you're reaching out to. So if you believe that he restores, then you've got to believe in spite of you not having all the answers because you don't. But you're going to have to say, you know what, I don't have the answers, but I know that he's got the power and reach out to him. Finally, you're going to have to believe in spite of your feelings. Uh, Jesus arrives. Jarius is asking him to come heal this Man, or someone comes to him in, uh, let me see there, in verse, um, I've lost my place, I apologize, y'all. In uh, verse 30, uh, 38, verse 38, uh, he cometh, I apologize, I've, I've lost my place altogether. If we go to verse 35, that's the verse I'm trying to find. He says, there's somebody that meets him, meets Jarius along the way and says, thy daughter is dead, why troublest thou the master any further? So this is terrible news. It's it's kind of got to be a gut punch for Jarius. It's like your daughter's even. I mean, he's not just sick; she's dead now. It's it's over. Go home. Let don't don't bother Jesus anymore. And there are you'll find in verse thirty five. You see, there's a, there's sort of a resignation. It's done. It's all we can do. If you go to verse thirty eight, there's some people that are de depressed. Uh, they're wailing and weeping. If you go to verse forty, the first part of that, there's people that are just they're they're sarcastic and that's some, i think a sign of their anger they're just angry about the situation but jesus's answer to all of that all those emotions and those 
one of the things I always want to make sure I tell people when I talk about feelings and emotions is your emotions are valid. I understand that those are, those are real, that you feel the way you feel, but that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it the only answer because Jesus says in verse 36, he says here, be not afraid. The last phrase, be not afraid, only believe. I think in some ways he's saying, you know, you're going to have all these emotions because this is a sad situation, but hold on, believe in me because I'm able to fix this. And, and these people, they have all kinds of emotions. They're all over the place, but that Jesus is not waiting for them to get their, get their act together. He's not waiting for them to calm down or waiting for them to, to feel better. He doesn't wait for those feelings to get in order. He just comes in in verses 41 and 42. He gets mom and daddy off to the side. He says, let's go in here, talk to the daughter, puts her, put, 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 holds her by the hand, tells her to get up. She gets up and walks. What I want you to understand about this is that restoration can happen. This restoration, it's all the things I said, that restoration of families, that restoration of, of peace, that restoration of even the life that we have, eternal life, those that are that are dead in Christ that need to be brought into salvation. That restoration can happen when Jesus is involved, no matter how you feel. Because sometimes your feelings are going to be, oh my goodness, I don't know how, my, how yours are, but mine sometimes can be all over the place. Be worried about stuff that if I'm, if I'm honest about it, don't need to be worried about. I can be happy about stuff that I have no business being happy about. I can, I, I can be all over the place, but if there's a need, whatever you feel about it, however desperate it feels, however far away it feels, if Jesus gets involved, he can and he does restore, and it's in spite of your feelings. So, so my encouragement to you is not to say, well, let's hope there's no fallout from believing in Jesus, or uh, let's hope that you get, get everything right when you come to Jesus, or, or you know, let's get your feelings in order. That's not the, that's not the message. The message is your feelings are going to be a mess, but still come to Jesus. You're going to have repercussions. There's going to be people that are mad at you, people that are upset with you, people that don't like you anymore because you're following Jesus now, but still come to Jesus. You're going to get it wrong. You're going to say the wrong things. You're going to ask God for the wrong things. Your prayers are going to be theologically flawed, but come to Jesus. That's the message because he is the one who restores. When you, if you could, you could get yourself at his feet. Now he'll make you right. He'll give you the right. He'll teach you the scripture. He'll get your theology right. He'll help your feelings, give you that peace that passes understanding. He'll help you to understand the truth. He'll help you in so many ways. But that's the fruit of Jesus's involvement. It starts by getting him involved. And when you get him involved, he changes. He transforms everything. I hope that makes sense to you. And more than makes sense, I hope it encourages you to Hold on a little longer. I used to say, I don't say it as much anymore, but I'll say it tonight that you just need to hold on, and look up because Jesus is coming back soon. He's there for you. He's there with you right now and hope you'll, hope you'll reach out to him for the help that you need.